probably just edit out the introduction. You did actually hit record. I did actually hit record. Yeah, it's currently going right now. I might, I might actually leave this in. Fuck, who cares? All right, so um, welcome back to episode four of the New World Signals podcast. We are live in New Orleans, Louisiana. All right, this is Paul Fahrenheit, your host as always. I am not on my Orange County estate this time because I have been traveling across the country, breaking hearts, taking names, getting in trouble with federal agencies and the like. And it's, it's been a wonderful time. And I'm here with several of my friends, no less than five. No less than five people are in this room right now, all right? Uh, and I want, I want all of y'all to uh, roll off and introduce yourself to, the, uh, to all ten listeners of this podcast, all right? So who, who, who we got here? Who we got right next to me, all right? All right, we got Charles Charlemagne in the house. Let's go. Yeah, Orleans Charlemagne. Local, of course. <laughs> I'm George Bagby. This is Joseph Critters. I'm Christopher Sandbag. Chris, yes, yeah, so these are all... Um, uh, all gentlemen who many of you will have uh, will have met from uh, the United States event and from uh, other related institutions uh, such as the Abbeville Institute and uh, just generally we've, we've, we've got a bunch of uh, very talented very intelligent gentlemen around us and uh, I, I figured you know for this episode of the podcast I wanted to do something something a little bit special uh, just just a live episode of just all of us in a room kind of bullshitting, just kind of talking about really anything that comes to mind. Just generally keeping in line with the topic of uh, today's uh, episode, which is Louisiana and really anything that has to do with Louisiana. And Louisiana is a big place if you look at the original, uh, what was it, 1803 purchase. Uh, it stretches from here to Canada. So so Louisiana yeah. is a big, greater Louisiana is a big place. Actually so, included Montana. Yeah, it did include <laughs> That's Montana. That's pretty funny. Yeah, and, and parts of Florida. Um, so really, honestly, it's just it's just whatever comes off the top of y'all's head. Um, you know, Mr. Sambach, as a uh, as a born and raised local to Louisiana, could you maybe in a in, in a couple of sentences to a couple of forty minute paragraphs uh, explain the importance of uh, Louisiana within the uh, within the context of Americana? Ooh, the Americana, Louisiana's always kind of been, uh, it's a very strange sort of, I hate to use a shit lip word, but it's sort of been a, a very strange American other for um, most of the last three centuries. Um, New Orleans, um, everybody's familiar with New Orleans. It is really, you know, there's a famous old saying and nobody really knows who said it. Maybe it was Tennessee Williams, maybe it was Mark Twain, maybe it was somebody else. There's an old saying that America has three cities, and uh, one of them's New York, one of them's New Orleans, and the other one's San Francisco, and everywhere else is Cleveland. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I've never been to Cleveland, so I don't know. I don't. I, I, I don't know what what Cleveland looks like. But I think the the thing that most people would recognize, think of when they think of New Orleans, is sort of it, Louisiana's New Orleans, and then of, of, of course Mardi Gras. But uh, I, one of the things that I think people probably should pay more attention to is that, is that uh, Louisiana is a source of a very distinct culture that exists within America. There's a little, like, you know, there's a little Cajun ethno state in southwest Louisiana. New Orleans is certifiably America's oldest bohemia. You know, it's one of its oldest centers of culture. And uh, it kind of gets a reputation for being a, you know, 
poor run-down, out-of-the-way state that's with one little party town in it. But there's a lot more going on here than, than, you know, than, than people generally suspect, I think. Yeah, a lot more going on. No, a lot has been going on in Louisiana for pretty much the entire, uh, you know, the entire probably two, three hundred years of its history. Because there was about, I don't know, there was about a hundred years of Louisiana, maybe a little bit more before, <clears throat> before English dominion in the form of the United States. And, you know, I mean, you know, not just talking about the Spanish rule or the uh, the French rule, both before and after the Spanish well, here's, rule. Here's an interesting, interesting. <clears throat> bit. In fact, in fact, actually, where we are now is the only strip of land on the entire North American continent that was owned by all of the major colonial powers. So where we are right now was at one time owned. It was sort of originally, actually, here was originally colonized by the Spanish, and it was turned over to France, and <clears throat> then turned back over to the Spanish and then the British briefly held it and so uh, and then it was briefly its own kind of quasi-independent country but that's this is the uh, in the entire North American continent this is the only place that has all of the old colonial influences that you can see and of course if, if you've been down to the French Quarter you've seen that what looks like the French Quarter is actually the Spanish because it burned down when the Spanish owned it and that, and that sort of thing but this is the only this is where we are now it's the only place that was owned by all of the major European colonial powers, so all of them kind of run into each other right here. You mean West Florida? Yeah, West Florida. Yeah, yeah. The, the old, the old province of West Florida, which was, you know, it was not, it was invited to become part of the American Revolution, and the both of the Florida, both of the Florida provinces, East Florida and West Florida, were originally invited to become part of the, you know, thirteen. You would have been the fifteen colonies, but they they had their own problems with alligators and bears and, and <laughs> Spanish Spanish aristocrats, and pirates. So they, yeah, pirates. Spanish aristocrats means pirates, <laughs> and uh, and and they declined to join the to join the revolution. And so it, it took took another fifteen years or so before we before we, we climbed on board. Well, it's this anomalous geography along the Gulf Coast, because the Gulf Coast looks really weird on the map. Mm -hmm. um, you've got the Florida Panhandle, which is this long, narrow thing, which is basically South Alabama, culturally. And then you've got Mobile, which just sticks down out of South Alabama. And it's weird in Alabama, like Mobile is culturally distinct from the rest of Alabama. And then you've got the Mississippi Gulf Coast, which is also just this anomaly. And then you got the Florida parishes that are north of New Orleans, across the lake from New Orleans. And uh, they're, they're all linked together on the map, and they're linked together historically. Yeah. Which is and a strange thing. Maybe the other, the other is this, again, this peculiar area. West Florida is probably one of the last areas in the United States that would have been considered frontier. And so, like, I mean, of course it's in the South, and it was, in fact, part of the Confederacy. Though, you know... This is the part of the state that didn't vote to join the Confederacy, and they, but then they also didn't. They also voted against joining the United States. So they, you know, always take the unpopular side of any any um, any political spat. But this was also because of the climate, which is it is you know without air conditioning, it's one of the most in, inhospitable places in the country. Maybe more so than Arizona, and maybe even more so than than you know like parts of California. This was an area that was largely frontier undeveloped area until almost the mid 20th century and you can kind of still see you can still kind of see that it's just only very 
very timidly being reclaimed from nature and you know like you, you, cause you can you can smell the swamp smell the pine trees and you can tell you know it's, it's still a very wild place compared to most places in the continental United States yeah with the hurricanes hitting it every five minutes it might not be uh, <laughs> might not be hospitable for long Louisiana try not to get totally destroyed by a hurricane challenge impossible, impossible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I think uh, the two of you saw when we were um, at the battlefield where the Battle of New Orleans took place, you asked whether or not we were below the waterline of the Mississippi River, so we went to take a look, and indeed we were. Um, so, you know, large large parts of the areas people actually live in here were only recently really made permanently livable uh, because you have these literal walls of civilization keeping the natural forces of nature at bay, and mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of a problem we're always uh, dealing with here. Yeah, and the local, the local corruption doesn't do too much in keeping those uh, levees nice and functional, does it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... Um, down, it the, down in New Orleans, they've got the big pumping stations that uh, they're constantly keeping the water out of the city. Even even well, a regular rainstorm. <laughs> they're supposed yeah, to keep it out. <laughs> when they're actually operating. But the, the city government turned it into a plum for the, for the supporters of the city politicians. So they turned it into a jobs program, basically, a, a reward, a, a political prize. And so it's, it's just another extension of the corruption of the city government in New Orleans. At any given time, you know, portion of the pumping stations are offline because people aren't doing their job. And uh, when they do fail, which the city floods frequently, uh, they get bailed out either by the state of Louisiana or by the federal government. So yeah, I've complained about, you know, the state of things here frequently online, but this is a very special place, as we talked about in the introduction. There's this unique blend of cultures that makes this place a distinct city in the Americas, and even if you travel nearby, you know, I went to visit the USS Alabama a few weeks ago, and I was in Mobile, and many southern cities within a hundred mile or even larger radius they all just feel like facsimiles of new orleans in a sense mm. um, new orleans really is the center of culture in this part of the country for a large part of the south um and it is a really important place um N new orleans is just magic yeah and you it's full of magic you arrives too. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we would There's like to apologize, by the way, to all, everyone in Mobile who just hit the ceiling and hurt their and, 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 and hurt their head. <laughs> they want to be distinct, but you you get you get down here, you you uh, walk around, and you hear music that's actually being played on on instruments, like in the open air, and it's beautiful, and it's unlike. Any anything that you hear anywhere else, you know, it's its own spirit of music, and you get down here and you you eat, you know, a seafood sandwich at a gas station. You can get po'boys. You can get some of the best po'boys at gas stations, and it's it's uh, it's just a portable feast. It's really good. It's it's unusually good. You didn't think that fried fish would taste so good, but it does down here. And it's, and it's something special. And it's that way with the music, too. Um, jazz was invented in New Orleans. And then the jazz musicians found really good gigs in Chicago and New York. And they went off to Chicago and New York, and they, and they made jazz the, the great form of music that it is. But up in Chicago, they got melancholy. 
they got sad, they got introspective. New Orleans jazz is always happy. New Orleans jazz is upbeat. And that's because New Orleans is a place that has kind of a primal joy in it. You know, it's interesting you raised that point. Um, you know, when we were walking around the French Quarter, even though there was a lot of graffiti everywhere and there was a lot of like modern buildings and modern shops that moved in and opened and um, you know, you see all these, these chains of these fast food restaurants or these uh, retailers, but looking at the French Quarter and looking at the kind of the cathedral in Jackson Square that is surrounded by the French Quarter, I kind of, I kind of realize, and I, you know, you walk around and you see these signs with the, um, uh, with the sigil of Castile and Leon, and it says, when this city was under the rule of Spain, this street was called, and then it was the street name when it was a Spanish city. And, you know, it's just all these little things on top of each other. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of had this thought that like, oh, this is one of those, one of those very few places that seems almost not untouched by, but defiant of what we call modernity. It's like, it's like it's rejected it. It's like, it, 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 it's, it's almost found a way to exist outside of it, you know? And even if it is in a, in an area overflowing with tourists and, uh, and, <laughs> um, you know, to quote Walker Percy, the same old jazz music and the, and the same old, uh, caricatures and stereotypes of itself even even still it, it, it seems like it is a place and there there are very few places in america that that feel like that you know mm-hmm. you know new orleans new orleans actually does feel like it is somewhere and it doesn't just feel like it's a carbon copy of europe either it just feels it, it feels like it came from that vein but it, it does feel like it's something yeah, see, that's the thing people always people always want to say. It's the most European city in America, and I don't think that's true. The most European city in America is Charleston. Yeah, or yeah, that's yeah, it's probably the probably right answer. It's like you know, if you've if you've been if you've, if you've been to Europe and then you come to New Orleans, you're like, I don't know, that's, I don't, I don't, I can see why you would think that, but no, the and the other thing that then this one I do think because you know how you know people are familiar with the American nations map or whatever, you know the. You know the culture. They're usually yeah, the one, this the point, one that gets redrawn yeah. every thirty yeah, seconds like each time. Each time a new eighteen-year-old opens up Hearts yeah. of Iron Four. <laughs> literally, literally every listener has their own personal version of that map. And one one of the salient features of it is that this part of the country is always drawn separately. You know, it's like you know, like you know, they, they, everybody argues about where Tennessee goes or where you know the where everybody argues about where Virginia goes. But <laughs> but, but, but but you know, always Louisiana is drawn separately. And the other thing, and this is you know, I I thought I'd come up with this as the most clever line in the world years ago, and it's, it's the northernmost city in the Caribbean. And then I log I had to log on to the yacht club, the New Orleans Yacht Club website the other day for something. It's right there on their banner. It's the <laughs> northernmost city in the Caribbean. I was like, well, I guess I didn't make that up. <laughs> but I do think it's the most accurate description because I mean, it's not the most European city. It's also not really like the rest of the South. Like, you know, yeah. you go to, like, you know, Birmingham has a very distinctly Southern feel. Memphis has a very, and even Baton Rouge, about uh, 100 miles up the river, has a very distinctly Southern feel to it. But down in New Orleans, is, it's considered a Caribbean. Caribbean is what works, I think. But it doesn't. It doesn't really even feel like it fits in that mold either. Like it's it's almost too European for the Caribbean, but it's too Caribbean for you know the rest of America. Like it, it is. It is. 
it, it's hard. It could almost be like, um, you know, I know this, this city has like probably about, you know, if another big hurricane hits it, you know, Mississippi, what was it you said about the Mississippi Delta shifting or something? Or like like New Orleans will be a coastal city within a within Yeah, a the Delta years. will be up against uh, New Orleans uh, just a few miles away. Within, you know, the next century, if the land keeps being eroded by, you know, natural erosion and hurricanes. Because, you know, the central defining feature of New Orleans is, of course, the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River is supposed to dump its sediments literally where I live, where we were, you guys were staying uh, a couple of nights. And... It no longer does that because the levees are up and they allow us to live there, um, but that causes the land not be replaced by the sediments that the river deposits. You know, that should all be swamp land, which protects the city itself from the gulf, but all of that is just disappearing now. And, you know, as those swamps erode, there will be nothing. The swamps protect us from the gulf, the storm surges that come through the gulf, and once all those swamps are eroded right up into the levee system, which, you know, might sound, I guess, hyperbolic, but it's inevitable. It's an inevitable natural process if nothing is done about it. Um, then the consequence of that is that the Mississippi River Delta will be at, located at New Orleans. Um, yeah, and, and, and so, like, even if New Orleans kind of has the fate that Venice is having right now in which the city is slowly kind of sinking into the into the encroaching ocean. Um, matter of fact, I think New Orleans is actually very comparable with Venice and it's sort of in its place in comparison to the wider entity that New Orleans is counted as a part of because Venice was like the center of its own little like weird kind of nation for a little while. New Orleans feels like it could almost be the capital of its own nation. Like, like separate from everything, separate from the Caribbean, separate from the United States, even separate from like Louisiana, strange as that sounds. But, um, but you know, Doesn't even if it is, even if it sounds is, strange to most Louisianians, most Louisianians <laughs> would love to be separated from New Orleans. Yeah. yeah, when I travel north, it feels like being in a different state just as much as if I go to Mississippi. It is. It's very, very culturally distinct. Even here, where we are now. Well, yeah. there's, there's, there's five distinct. <clears throat> Almost all states have like ways you can chop. You know, Virginia's got the Tidewater, the Piedmont, and the you know Greater Appalachia. Or Appalachia, I don't know. Valley and Ridge and the Appalachian Plateau. how to Plateau. say it. Yeah, Louisiana is for a number of distinct reasons is more culturally segregated than most states are. In part because of the various ethnic groups that have come in. Uh, you know, in part also because of the of the state's other you know, defining characteristic, which is, you know, abject poverty and lack of infrastructure. Uh, where we sit, we're in, in the toe of the boot right now. There's actually not really a good way to get to the top part of the state. And so the top, the, everything from Alexandria on up, it um, functionally indistinct from Southern Arkansas or yes, you could call it greater, Pine Land, yeah, call yeah. it greater Mississippi, uh, south of there. And you're, of course you're in Cajun country. And then, so that's two. And then, this the the toe of the boot is sort of is sort of you know chopped up and it's in its own way as well and where where we are right now is sort of on the on the western edge of what would have been the old plantation belt uh, and that that runs right along the Mississippi River up you know up towards up towards uh, between New Orleans and Baton Rouge 
And then there's the greater New Orleans area, which is like the, the you know, when you say we're having a podcast about, you know, Louisiana and everybody's like, oh, can't wait to hear about Alexandria and Baton Rouge. Yeah, <laughs> talk about New Orleans. And so that's, that's the section that everybody else gets angry at and, you know, piles on. But, you know, I have a buddy and this is one of, this is something you don't run into, I think, in a lot of states. Uh, he's, you know, 10 years older than me, and I'm 32, and he's lived in Louisiana his entire life, never left the country, lived in Louisiana his entire life, but he also, and he's up in, he's up in Shreveport, and he had, until last year, had never been to South Louisiana, okay, and so, like, that, the, there, there's a strange isolation that exists, mostly because there's just not, you know, Huey Long famously built roads that would, you know, you could get, that that you could get used to get from the western part of the state to the you know to the state capital but still there's not really a lot of ways to move around louisiana unless you really really want to like if you wanted to get from here to shreveport you have you really have to you have to drive through mississippi almost to do it mm-hmm. um and there aren't a lot of states where to get to another place in that state you would have to like leave the state and go into another one and so you know, it, it's it's more culturally segregated than other states, and it, yeah, it's true that everybody else gets sick of hearing about New Orleans, but everybody outside of the state doesn't get sick of hearing about New Orleans. <laughs> you know, and there, there are so many parts of the state that are basically dead ends on roads. Like, oh yeah, like in South Louisiana, like Lafourche, uh, like uh, Tesh Country. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're just dead ends on roads. They're way out in Cameron Parish, uh, down on the Gulf Coast. You have to want to go to that place. It's not on the way anywhere. Like Grand Isle. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, uh, There's nothing grand about you, it. You got you to gotta, gotta go like four hours down Highway 1 to get to Grand Isle. And uh, there, you have to go there on purpose. Nobody passes through these, yeah. these settlements. You have to go there on purpose. And so as a consequence, they're very culturally isolated. They're isolated from the rest of the country. They're off the beaten path. And as as a result of that, that they're insular. They've yeah. always been very insular. These people are very settled there, and yeah. it's a it's kind of it's a difficult place to live. You know, it's a dangerous place to live, and people are really strangely enough. You, you you might think, oh well, that sounds very unattractive. These people love where they live, and that and that's the the thing that I love most about Louisiana. I got to say, you know, it's mysterious. It's got all these beautiful things. The food is good. The coffee is the best. But you talk to people when you come here and they'll tell you how much they love it and how much they, they want to stay here. This is where they belong. Yeah, I was mentioning, uh, well, you guys were staying over my place, how people tend to go, basically anytime you go southeast of the city, um, people always feel like it's a very uh, long distance to go. Uh, mostly because no one ever goes there, right? Like these dead-end paths, you never go further toward the Mississippi Delta than you live, basically, because there's nothing down there but a dead end. Like, where where I live, um, you know, I, my parents live a bit more down the road, but at that point, I can probably count on, you know, my two hands how many times I've been further down the road in my whole life because there's absolutely nothing there. There's no reason to go down these dead-end trails other than sightseeing, basically, you know, yeah. if you know someone there. Right? So it's kind of justified that anyone outside of this area would only care about New Orleans, because not only does yeah. anyone outside New Orleans kind of want to be left alone anyway, so it's much of their benefit that nobody cares, but also it's a key strategic area between the, the opening of the Mississippi, you got the port here, you got all the refineries, like the strategic importance of the rest of America can't be understated. 
Yeah. Oh, that is well. You know, there, there's a there's a you know a double real quick before we get to that. You mentioned Grand Isle. Have you ever heard my shark bite story about Grand Isle? <laughs> no way. Oh yeah. I was just f- oh, f- wow. Wade fishing and wade fishing down in in, in Grand Isle because you can do that. It's one of the only places in the world where you can wade out into the ocean and theoretically catch a tuna. But the way people go about this, the way people go about this is wildly, wildly irresponsible. And when I you know, had imbibed a few beverages, you know, wading as far out into the ocean as you can with dead fish attached to your body to use as bait. And, you know, like, and, you know, anybody who knows what's going on can figure out where this story's going. You know, I was like, you know, looked up from a drunken beer haze, and you know, like, there's, you know, like the Jaws music starts playing in my head. You know, and the, it, of course, at the end of this story is that you know, a, a, fit, a, a shark comes in. And, uh, you know, you're told to punch the shark. And I punched the shark and mm-hmm. missed, and it bit me. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, but it, it's, it's, you know, if you're imagining a huge fish, though, you know, it's, it was, we're talking about it like that big. It's, 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 it's my dinky little shark story. But, yeah, no, strategic value. Um, you know, one of the things that people, you know, when you start to think about, the, you know, the global American empire, well, so what is the what is the what is the number one thing that you would think of when you when you what is the number one maintainer of the global American empire? Grain futures. Yeah, God, like, of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been around me too long. <laughs> but I mean, that, that really is this what it is? Because it's one of the reasons, one of the ways that you know America maintains its sovereign hegemony. To use a word that I don't really like. Is that it goes into uh, African countries or you know third world countries or you know shithole countries like Germany and destroys their, <laughs> dis- destroys their their uh, you know their 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 native agriculture and says well we got better stuff for you here's some cheap corn um, the it is better the, though. The, the, <laughs> the the important the strategic importance of New Orleans to that process can't be overstated because all of that all of that stuff is grown you know in what was the Louisiana Purchase all the way up to Montana. Where they grow wheat, they you know they put they put that stuff on barges and it comes down here uh-huh. and this is where it's dispersed to the rest of the world. And so when people are like, "Well, they keep rebuilding that city over and over and over again," well, that's the 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 gay needs the gay city to disperse. It to <laughs> <people>. <laughs> you know, it's the, it's the the way it works. Well, like and that, you know that's completely correct. And it's like you know you always need a city at the mouth of the entrance to the largest body of navigable fresh water in the entire world. Like, like, like a lot of people don't realize this about the United States. It's a fact often overlooked, especially with guys among our thing who are, you know, who really don't know anything about fucking international trade at all. Um, but, um, but the United States, uh, particularly the Mississippi River system, that includes the Ohio River and the Great Lakes and the Red River into Texas and the Atchafalaya, if that's how you fucking pronounce it. I don't know how to fucking pronounce these Cajun words. <laughs> and, the, uh, and the Missouri and all that. You know, and all the little rivers that go into all the states like a massive freaking tree right it's, it's the largest body of contiguous navigable fresh water in the entire world and not only is it it's 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 larger than the rest of the world combined and this is really what built america as the international trading power that it is because water is the most reliable form of infrastructure in the world it is the it is the cheapest you can transport the most and it can handle the most stress of any infrastructure in the world. So people sit here and wonder, like, oh, how did America get to the point, like, oh, yeah, it's big, it's got a lot of territory, it's got a lot of resources. But, like, what made America 
so great at, uh, at at resource exploitation, I also think was some of the things that helped develop its national genius, which is in logistics, was the amount of navigable waterway we had. You know, we have so many great cities that just develop because, well, we have all of these great rivers that just flow through the country. And you need, even if it is put in a shitty location, even if it is put in a location that's constantly sinking, it's fighting against the... Uh, fighting against the Gulf encroaching uh, less successfully than the Dutch do it, you need a city at the mouth of that entrance uh, to be the gateway to the rest of the world, to take that interior strength, that internal strength, that the, those resources, whether it be wheat that you grow up in Montana, whether it be logs that you cut all the way up in the, in the North Woods and just float down to Chicago and then float down uh, once they get turned into actual lumber or, or slaughtered animals up in Chicago that you float down and then sell as a uh, pork bellies or whatever, however else you refer to it. All of that needs a entrance and an exit um, into the wider world. And I mean, you know, other than like the Erie Canal out into the, to the St. Lawrence, there's really no other way to do that than to bring it down to the bottom of the Mississippi River out into the Gulf into the rest of the world. And that's why New Orleans or some version of it, and it'll probably always be called New Orleans, even if it's 30 miles away from the spot it is now, needs to exist. New Haiti. New Haiti. <laughs> it needs to exist as a port, but, you know, you have all the other aspects of civilization built up around it. You know, schools, department stores, churches, you know, every aspect of city life everywhere. But the country, the gay, doesn't really care about any of that, right? No one cares about us. They care that they can load and unload their ships and get them out of the mouth of the river and that's about it you know they don't have any they don't have much interest in actually ensuring that you know the people here are actually protected from these forces of nature that have been held at bay ultimately to our detriment one of the interesting things is to really protect this place you need a sort of land barrier between the city and the gulf which is basically where i live um but you really need a sort of fdr you know, Hoover Dam type engineering project to build the type of seawalls that the Belgians have to protect the city where it is now, which is actually totally possible. That's one of the bizarre things about the flooding is that there's really no reason why um, we shouldn't be able to engineer a basically permanent protection system um, from the power of the ocean, basically, and it just doesn't happen. And as our civilization's ability to, you know, could you imagine us building the, building the interstate system now? I don't. I couldn't really no. see us doing that. We're too busy uh, babysitting so, the entirety of the colored world. What's going to happen when a project of that magnitude is actually necessary to keep things stable here? It'll be interesting to see what happens once things reach to that point. Because, like, take a look at Louisiana on a map, right? If you think about the shape of Louisiana and you think about the toe of the boot where, which protects New Orleans, you know, the wetlands... That land doesn't really exist in the capacity that maps tend to depict it. If you look at the satellite view now, yeah. um, it's, it's underwater. It's disappearing, and the state's shape isn't really how it's normally depicted when you just see the outline of it, right? And I think that's something a lot of people, even other people in the in Louisiana and northern Louisiana, don't really realize about this place. One of the things that always sticks in my mind is the difference between what the swamps the bayous near me looked like before Katrina in terms of the amount of land and trees there and after Katrina. And there was just permanently more water there. 
right? So there's no trees anchoring the soil to the land anymore, which is a huge risk. And I just think about, okay, what is it going to look like after the next storm, you know, and then the next one? How many can be maintained? How long can this be maintained? Well, just to put an exclamation point on how little they actually care about the people around this area, like, if any of these strategic resources are threatened, be like the port or the refineries or what have you, by storms or flooding, they will blow the levees yeah. and take out tens of thousands of people, like, without even thinking about it. Yeah, that was done, it was before my time, but it was Andrew or Camille, I think, where they actually blew uh, one of the levees with dynamite, because basically, you know, what happens when you have water against the levees for a sustained period, it puts, it's put, it puts pressure on them. Right, and it, it can weaken them, and that'll pretend, potentially cause a breach. So, or if the the sur the the storm surge is about to basically top the levees, you basically have to make the decision to release that pressure somewhere. So you dynamite, you know, upriver or downriver, depending on the situation, in order to release that water somewhere else that's not the actual city, right itself. Um, and this is has been done before, and everyone it would be done again, and everyone knows it. Um, and that's just sort of the conditions we live under where basically anyone who's not in the city proper will just be sacrificed at any point to save the city, which really should have its own protection. That's kind of one of the crazy things is I'm outside the jurisdiction of the city of New Orleans, but my town will be flooded to save some city under some other government that is, you know, too corrupt and incompetent to actually protect itself, uh, which is, you know, really frustrating. That, that's part of the romance of New Orleans, strangely enough, is it, it is literally <laughs> surrounded by walls. It, it's, it's literally surrounded by walls, and it has moats around mm-hmm. it. And uh, it, there's just something so old-fashioned about that. But it's, it's not to keep out the barbarians. The barbarians are already inside. <laughs> uh, but... I would like to point out also that you know anyone who thinks that the, that the United States will stop at nothing to protect gay people's right to have you know un, unlimited <laughs> promiscuity with one another. New, um, New Orleans is probably maybe the second or third gayest city in the country, and uh, they're not getting saved either. So like yeah, it's, 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 it's so strategically so strategically important that the U.S. government is willing to drown gays to keep it. That's how important it is, if that that frames it properly. One of the things you touched on earlier that was interesting, though, is how the city resists modernity, which I found interesting. I mean, really, the architecture itself seems to resist the modern world, right? Everything there is very old. um, Except the the graffiti murals, the blacks paint. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, those can be removed. Um... But uh, there, despite all the corruption, there are laws in place that basically restrict you from even changing anything um, about the composition of the buildings. You know, to the west of the city, there's Uptown, which is sort of where the richer people live, and it's filled with beautiful houses. And even if you own one of those houses, you can't make many modifications to it at all. It has to be cleared with the city council, and the house basically will always look exactly the same from the outside. And you no, know, there are rules like this all over the South. So it is, it is very much, no matter who is living in this place, it's always preserved to be what it is for maybe, you know, someone in the future to really appreciate. But there are very beautiful things here. Um, if you had more time, you know, we could have gone through Uptown and St. Charles Street and seen some of the, you know, absolutely immaculate um, houses well, part, part of me thinks that uh, the reason that that's in place, as a matter of fact, the reason I think that the city resists modernity is 
because of this uh, much maligned corruption. Honestly, I mm-hmm. think corruption has a silver lining. And if there's one thing that corruption does, corruption does what the conservatives say they do, which is keep <laughs> things the same forever. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and um, I, I think you gentlemen would agree when I say Louisiana is the most blatantly corrupt place in the entire United States. Yeah. Probably, to um, its benefit. Blatant, yeah. To its benefit. You know, and yeah. I say blatantly corrupt. I come from D.C. D.C. is more corrupt, but it's not as blatant. Um, but, you know, and I think that there's, you know, yeah, it may result in the entire city being sank, but, like, that kind of corruption prevents people from, like, getting the sort of HRE free city protections that's extended to the French Quarter in these, um, uh, in these historic sites, uh, that prevent the buildings from getting altered to the point of not being recognizable. And, um, to be honest, I think the, uh, the general population of the state you know, for all for all the bemoaning and the and the um, uh, disliking that they do of the uh, of the corrupt populace, what is it, like sixty five percent of them are self admitted strongly conservatives. Um, more the other, than the other thirty two percent, the thirty sixty five percent conservative. <clears throat> I think it was sixty five percent conservative, thirty two percent black. <laughs> you know? And there's the, there's a, there's a tiny population of white shit lib that all look the same. They're fat. They have fedoras. They wear cargo shorts and uh, those, uh, those button down Charlie Sheen shirts. And they blow clouds of you know vapor and, and, and everywhere. And but yeah, you know I think I think it was sixty five percent conservative and about thirty two percent strong conservative is what I think that was what the real number is. That's still maybe the highest in the country. You know. Yeah, and, and all and all of this contributes to ensure that you know, Louisiana and, and New Orleans keeps feeling like it's a place and doesn't really change it. Like, unimportant shit changes. Like, like you know, the names of the people in the offices or who get who got caught having gay sex with who in a public park or, or <laughs> other such things. But, um, um, but you know, it, it, there is kind of a... I don't know, I mean... It, Maybe maybe even blatant corruption is better than uh, than what we have now, which, well, which really says something. It, it's it's part of the <clears throat> part of the hilarious uh, aspect of our politics here is that the state is so corrupt, and everybody talks about how how corrupt even the local governments are, and as a consequence, no one takes it too seriously. No no one's looking at elected officials expecting them to do anything dramatic. And if they do, we think they're they're obviously up to something to line their own pockets. Mm-hmm. I think that's a Mediterranean feature that kind of got transferred over. I think it is, um, and and that's part of the Latin American sort of vibe that yeah. you get down here. <laughs> um, but there's, I, I guess there's a, a healthy appreciation for the limits of nature down here, for the limits of human nature, where we automatically assume the the politician is out to get some for himself. And, and we do typically assume that about our politicians here. Um, but like, like the walls around the city of New Orleans, those walls are not there to keep out barbarian tribes. They're there to keep out nature. And we all know that we lose that fight against nature. We know that nature is actually in charge and that human plans cannot conquer nature. Down here we get storms where all the... The best human planning that we can come up with. And of course, we could build the big walls like the Dutch, but we have not. Um, and, and who knows if we'll ever figure that out. We're, we're on our way down. Um, but we, 
the engineers come up with stuff. They build the stuff. It's billions of dollars. The storm hits. We still flood. No one's going to invent anything that's going to stop the wind. The wind is going to blow our roofs off. It does. Um, you drive around Louisiana now, you'll see uh, blue tarped houses everywhere. And that's from Ida. Uh, that was that was last year. Yeah, you know, it was al- almost... Yeah. Um, so, you know, nature comes in down here. Uh, nature blows its way into our lives. And we have a healthy respect for it. This is part of the reason why we've got kind of a, a reputation for for uh, outrageous art forms down here. For jazz, for, you know, the party scene in New Orleans. For Bourbon Street, where people go and, and drink themselves stupid. Um, it's It's because there's... A sense that things are winding down like it could all blow away tomorrow so we might as well enjoy ourselves that's uh, the, eat drink and be merry that's the, yeah. the second time something approaching a sort of decadent theme has approached the first time was whenever you whenever paul brought up venetian the venetians again there's there is a there's a strange resonance between venice and and new orleans for a number of reasons one of them is this ever present sense of decline yes <laughs> <laughs> Now, I'm you know I'm not the kind of person who likes to get real Spanglerian, but if you're if you're looking for Spanglerian resonances between two cities, you know of the Venetians. The Venetians are currently hitting the ceiling because they look they're, they're all trailer parts, trailer part redneck Venice, and maybe it is. But there there is I think there is a sim, there is a, a like sort of fundamental similarity there, which is there is always you know from the moment this city the city of New Orleans was built, it started declining. And uh, and 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 you sort of get the, the the same sort of idea with Venice is that for the last five hundred years it's just been sort of sinking into you know um, into a, a, a kind of decadent stupor as it you know as it became less and less economically important and as you know the people the people who live there became more you know focused on you know the own their own the own course of their their course of their own lives um, you know. I'm not. I'm not gonna make that. I'm not gonna chase that line too far. But it's there for somebody if they want to. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's kind of like how. How I mean, I, I guess Venice didn't exist until the final years of the Roman Empire. It was a bunch of like, I think, as far as I'm concerned, it was a bunch of refugees who kind of just went to this like archipelago off the coast of a uh, of that part of Italy and just kind of built a city there. Um, but you know. Venice kind of survived the fall of Rome. Honestly, maybe, maybe the irony of ironies will be that New Orleans survives the uh, fall, and I put that in heavy quotation marks because no one knows what the fuck it's going to look like. The fall of the American Empire, um, which you know, honestly, may be the quietest thing ever, and no one really realizes it until two hundred years after it's happened. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, with Louisiana, I mean. Huey Long kind of comes to mind when we when we start talking about all this corruption and this um uh, and this sort of sense of decline. The least and... corrupt Louisiana politician. <laughs> <laughs> like like not, not not even kidding though. Okay, like you, yeah. you know, like okay, you, Huey Long has his reputation in the rest of the country. Everybody's like, yeah, 
corrupt right-wing authoritarian Democrat, and we're like, like, he was the altruistic Anglo from the northeast corner of the state. Like, yeah, that's, 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 that's true. As, that's as good as it gets here. What, 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 was, what was the city he was from? It started with a W. Uh, uh, Win Winfield. Win. Yeah, so no, Winfield. Winfield and Win and Parish. Win Parish. Yeah. So he comes. Yeah, so he comes from Winfield, which is like this. This, this is fucking nowhere. There's nothing yeah. in Winfield. Yeah. Like it's this. It's this random pissant redneck town up in the uh, up in the pine part. Of uh, of Louisiana, every southern state has its pine belt. Every yeah. southern state has uh, has this just flat land where all the fucking pines are. Virginia has it. It's south of Richmond. It's the shittiest part. North Carolina has it. It's the whole like coastal plain. South Carolina has it. Georgia has. Every, well, you know why that is? Well, that I mean that's that's the native like sort of ecosystem yeah. of the entire southern coastal plain. It used to it really used to be an unbroken stretch of pine forest across the entire southern belly of the country. Yeah, and then a bunch of natives come and just did a bunch of slash and bird agriculture well, and burned away half of they it. They did that and then they replanted it and this was while the while you know your Chicagoans and their white pines they ran out of white pines in Chicago because they cut down all of the white pines in the entire Midwest yeah, to build best damn tree. Yeah to to build uh tenement houses in New York that fell down in 10 years and then they then they had to come find other trees and they cut down they clear cut the entire south except for like the little chunks of it that you're talking about but that whole thing used to cover the whole south gone now yeah but so uh, so yeah Huey Long he comes down from this sort of uh, what you call Peckerwood uh, pine region you said it not me (laughs) (laughs) comes down to you know comes down to fucking um was it Baton Rouge or New Orleans that he went to to sweet talk his way into law school? Tulane, so it was New yeah. Orleans. He went to New Orleans. Yeah, so so, and he's like, uh, you know, I, everyone everyone who's a right winger is somewhat familiar with the story of Huey Long. Right. Oh, you know, traveling salesman. Oh, t- took the bar and passed after his first year. You know, you don't you don't even need to study that hard to to pass the bar. Like you, you, if if you have like a somewhat decent IQ and like you know a little bit about like logic problems, I'd say most of most of you listening to this right now, after like a cursory study of U.S. and state law, could pass the bar without paying a cent for law school. It's it's not a hard test, but he he sweet talks his way into um, um into law school and and takes the bar after one year. Goes off, does his practice. Oh, I never took a case against. Him. Just, just watch all the kings, man. Just watch all the kings, man. That's 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 all it is. But the reason I bring him up is because for some for some reason I can't exactly put my finger on it. Maybe you gentlemen could could give could give an idea. But it's like he seems almost indicative as to the state that you know New Orleans and, and Louisiana and, and and the entire sort of region maybe even of the south at large kind of played into this sort of beginning of the or i guess the end of the beginning of the uh, american empire right i wouldn't say the beginning of the end that i don't know if, when that was but you could say you know what yaki calls the revolution of 1933 with the uh installation of the um uh, fdr and the managerial regime you know huey, huey long is kind of like a strange reaction to that and and really a sort of um I don't know. I, I, I may be like flan, floundering around here, grasping at straws, but he seems almost like a strange reaction to that. Well, I don't know about reaction, but I think there is a lot to what you're saying. And really, if you're talking about the, the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end, the beginning of the end <laughs> of the old America and the 
end of the beginning of the gay. Yeah. You know, okay. <laughs> he, Long is in a lot of respect. Because he was around before FDR was. You know, he's, 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 I think he was the governor. I think he was governor from 1925 to, you know, or something like that. And he, he starts to achieve national prominence after he's term limited as governor. But he's still, you know, he's the senator in Washington, but he's actually still running the running Louisiana with an iron fist, more or less. Um, he is, uh, along with Father Charles Coughlin up in, up in wherever is that, it was. Is that how you was. pronounce it? I yeah. heard it pronounced Coughlin and Colon, which both sound fucking terrible. Colon? How do we? Was well, he in Michigan? Uh, I think he might have even been in Canada, but well, he was or, from or, Canada. But he was from, living from, here, from Canada, and then in Minnesota. But these are like really okay. When you know, got excommunicated, you can go watch movies about the Great Depression mm-hmm. and this sort of thing. And you really the, the low finest of the whole thing is really what's sort of fascinating. When it, you know when you think of the United States during the Great Depression, <clears throat> really what sort of happened is getting you know if we try to imagine what when we try to imagine what collapse looks like, probably not terribly similar, probably not terribly different from what. The Great Depression looked like because this is a, a, a time whenever the influence of the federal government has drastically retreated because they've shot their credibility in the eyes of the public and they don't have the financial resources to build a giant police to you know to mobilize a giant police state to you know like you know uh, crack down on the crack down on the rednecks. Um, and so there's this unique sort of 10, 15 year period, the American Bund, the Silver Shirts, I think these are all groups that kind of spring up in the same. Yeah, I mentioned all those on a PQ show. And, uh, this is one of the last moments whenever it's possible for a kind of regional warlord authoritarian, like tribal chieftain to arise out of the mists in America. Base. You know, yeah, he was, and he, so he was able to do that, and, and, you know, there are a couple of other examples, but Long is by far the most colorful of them. Well, he wasn't even the only one, like, at his current time. Right. Like, you had had William, you had William H. Murray over in Oklahoma, who I talked about last episode. You had, uh, you had the birds over in Virginia who were Big doing Jim their own thing. in Alabama. Yeah. Right? Well, Long is the most colorful one. And yeah, so exactly. Like, and, and, and there, of course, there is, you know, there's the whole controversy about who killed Huey P. Long. And, you know, they're like only, there's a lot, a lot of people, a lot of people here especially think FDR killed him. And, you know, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to that, a, a lot to that argument. But, you know, Long is seen, and oh, historians are always going back and forth about Long. Is he a left-winger? Is he a right-winger? Is he a whatever? And, you know, it's, but the, they have this incredible complex about him because he was this very charismatic figure who, like, kind of was the last stab of, like, powerful localism in the United States. It was the last time that someone was able to, you know, carve a, carve a kingdom out of America that was not necessarily beholden to the federal government, like the, the like yeah. the William Jennings Bryan sort of a uh, populist tradition, yeah. kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think Bryanism actually had a program. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, that's like, that's a, long yeah. longism was was about Huey's latest idea, <laughs> and and historians his historians crack their heads trying to find some consistency to it, and there isn't. There isn't a consistency to longism, and there is no such thing as longism. It was it was just Huey Long, basically going out on on a Jeffersonian sort of campaign, and it was to to aggrandize himself to some degree, which he most certainly did, and I don't think anyone down here in Louisiana would deny that. But 
he went to bat for regular folks in Louisiana that wanted to make it on their own without being without being employees to big corporations. So when when uh, AA talks about disciplining the merchants, let's let's call the merchants and let's tell them where the lines are. Huey Long did that. Yeah, didn't he? Uh, didn't he like break up Standard Oil in uh, Louisiana? Or he threatened to <clears throat> on his own authority here in Louisiana. He exto- well, it's the, the, the way he was able, what he was able to do with oil companies is not really repeatable now. Okay, you, you can't really do it this way. In uh, his, I think it was Earl Long was his younger brother. Earl Long tried to do it, and the the oil yeah. companies had tried to had figured out how to get get around this by then, but the oil existed here and so if the oil companies wanted to extract the oil from here they kind of had to play by whatever rules long set and so he said okay you want oil here you want to get the oil here you're gonna have to pay you know an arbitrarily high tax rate compared compared to what you know they were they they were normally used to being able to get by going through going through state politicians and going through federal politicians he just didn't care I was like this is not a man that has a political program you know, it's like it's like it, it, I, you make an academic agent comparison. But I was just thinking, it was like I was the ac- academic agent in his like in his like like strange wars on various brands of cheap coffee. It's like it, it, kind of like if, if, if that aspect of him were put in charge of a whole state. You know? <laughs> well, Long had had uh, campaign promises. He said he was going to pave the roads. Um, I think Louisiana had maybe a hundred miles of paved road. Really, it was it was ridiculously small. How how few miles of paved road the state had when Long was elected governor. By the time he left Baton Rouge and went to the Senate, there were tens of thousands of miles of paved road. Um, he he created a huge highway department, and it was it was a jobs program. And, and that was part of the thing that he did. He, he raised the taxes on, on big boys like Standard Oil. He used the money to fund these big jobs programs, these big capital improvements. And he made sure that everybody he hired was personally loyal to him and also gave his campaign uh, regular deductions from their paychecks. So it was like personal financing. It, it, was, it was pretty deep and... and what we might call corruption, but he he actually did a lot of things for regular people here in Louisiana that we still are enjoying today. Like one of the main bridges in New Orleans is the Huey P. Long Bridge. He built it. I've heard it was a no terrifying bridge. There's two cool. of them. There's two of them. They're both equally terrifying. This is this is the the duality of Huey P. Long. <laughs> yeah. You know, he built. Well, first of all, the one in Baton Rouge I think is more interesting because you can really get if you have ever seen our Capitol, it looks like a giant dick. And it, 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 it's a giant Art Deco dick. It's all Huey. It, it's Huey yeah. P. Long, but. The bridge, all of the original highways that ran in, that run into the city, and you can see this the best on the Huey P. Long on the crossing the Huey P. Long Bridge coming from the west side of the Mississippi River to the east side of the Mississippi River. You get to a point where the the the, the city comes into view before you cross the bridge. You're on Highway, I think it's Highway 32, maybe. No, it's Highway 190. It's actually the one that's just right out right outside yeah. here, and. Um, the state capitol building lines up 
directly with the center of the road for most of the trip. And so, like, you're driving into Huey's city and, you know, on Huey's highway, across Huey's bridge, and you have to watch his giant state capitol building get larger and larger as you, know, you get there. It's just like, that, that's how, I mean, it's almost like inside the Third Reich type stuff. You know? But the, <laughs> one of the best things about that bridge in Baton Rouge, the Huey Long Bridge in Baton Rouge, is uh, that he purposely built it low enough so no ocean-going yeah. ship could go any further north on the river. They had to stop in Baton Rouge. Yeah. So Baton Rouge, the port of Baton Rouge, is the last port that serves ocean-going ships on the Mississippi right. River. Previous to that, ocean-going ships could go to Minneapolis. Yeah. They could go to Cincinnati, an so, ocean-going ship. So there's now um, there's, there's 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 no way course, to get under the bridge without that's pay, right. w- w- without taking the goods off of one ship, paying taxes and putting them on another <laughs> one. Which so that, that's that's the, that's, that's made, the way he did it. It <laughs> made the port of Baton Rouge explode. It's it's second in size to New Orleans, and of course it's on the river, so it's like a hundred miles long. It's a ridiculous size port, um, but it, it built Baton Rouge. I mean, it it was a huge boon for Baton Rouge. And of course, all the governors north of us were peeved, as you can understand, uh, cut down on all the river traffic. Um, but Huey Long went to bat for his people, and his people are here. Another thing, another thing he did, you know, he was interested in taxing the big businesses that were extracting wealth from the state, and that's how he funded his his projects, not not with debt, uh, though he had some. It wasn't no, nothing like our politicians these days. Um, he also guaranteed a uh, tax exemption for all property owners in Louisiana. Now, this mostly benefited poor people, farmers that were trying to make ends meet. So we have to this day uh, a special tax allowance here in Louisiana called the homestead exemption. Yep. If you live on your property, your your tax rate's capped at like 75000 or something like your property value. I don't remember the exact number, but yeah, it affects me. It affects all the homeowners in the. State. We have we have ridiculously low tax rates here for people who own property, and it's it's got to be one of the lowest in the union. Outside of a couple of places, city of New Orleans being one of them, mm-hmm. and yeah. this is this is part like of that. I mentioned the taxes yeah. are high. There. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is why the city of New Orleans generally hated Huey P. Long for their own, you know, for their own reasons. The fact is. The guy that shot him was from New Orleans, and and he's a Jewish optometrist, it, it, I believe. It's a, it's a, it's a <laughs> he was a Catholic. Actually. Yeah, he, yeah, he was, he was et- ethnically Jewish. So like he's, I don't, I'm not, no, I'm not going there. But, <laughs> but, 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 but the, but he, his, the assassins. This is a very famous instance where the funeral of Huey P. Long, ironically, was 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 attended by almost the same number of people as the uh, funeral of the guy who shot him, and so he did, he was a very divisive figure even in his own time. And in a, a, a number of cases, New Orleans often, parts of Southern Louisiana, New Orleans especially, will define itself almost against, you know, Huey Long. This is like, you know, one of the one, one of the aspects of everybody in Louisiana against New Orleans is, you know, Huey Long was their guy, and he, I mean, he hated New Orleans. He hated, hated going to New Orleans unless he was going to see a hooker. And, you know, he, he, <laughs> he, 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 he uh, 
you know, he enacted all sorts of anti-New Orleans policies in in favor of the Hicks in the countryside. Oh, they, he said the he said the National Guard to break up vice in New yeah, Orleans. Yeah, which is oh, really yeah, yeah. Had him had him mm-hmm. shut down because New Orleans used to have yeah. a stock exchange. He called it a ga- he called it a house of a house of gambling and shut it down. You know, <laughs> <laughs> which it was. I mean, it's oh, like one, one of the long. <laughs> He passed a special tax on the news media. Yeah. He called it a lie tax. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it was man. great. I love this guy. And I was going to ask, it's like you said there was no real consistency to his to his um, um, political program. And I'm like, not even self-interest? Self-interest makes sense. But, yeah, and he, he liked to build big bridges and put his name on them. <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, when, when he became governor, I think there was a bridge over the Red River. Not sure. I think there were, I think we're like two major bridges in the state of Louisiana, none of which crosses, crossed the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he left the governor's mansion, there were, there were several major bridges. Gunfire. I mean, there was, there was a, uh, there was a bridge at New Orleans. Yeah. There was a bridge at Baton Rouge. Yeah. There was a bridge at Shreveport. Yeah. Was, did he build one at Alexandria? Faraday. I think Faraday. Faraday? Yeah, I okay. think that's the other one. To, to Mississippi? Yeah. I'm not that's, sure about that one. I mean, one. <laughs> you couldn't cross the state before then. Yeah, nope. no. You, you had to take ferries across rivers. There was functionally no way... Is bef- There was functionally no way to get from Laffey, from Cajun country, to yeah. the state capital. You know, so like those people functionally didn't exist. Like, there's no way to collect taxes from them. There's no way to, you know, collect records from them. There's no way to... You couldn't trade... Well, now, now, libertarians, now the libertarians <laughs> yeah. hate Huey Long. <laughs> yeah. They do. They I mean, do hate yeah. I mean, <laughs> No one in Louisiana can imagine living in Louisiana without the stuff Huey Long built. We, well, we, we use it every day. Trying to analyze his political program in terms of left or right and sort of <clears throat> judging him or trying to see if you support him retroactively on that basis is just kind of stupid. I mean, the fact is that uh, for all of his own self-aggrandizement, which who cares, right? He delivered uh, to his people. He tra- he completely transformed Louisiana and turned it into, you know, for the time, a modern society, basically, to the yeah. extent that it could be. It's unimaginable for any politician to even deliver on one iota of what Huey Long did for us in the state today like we wouldn't even consider the idea that a politician would do anything a governor you know or a senator would do any of the things he did not even one of them well, you said he made louisiana modern society well now the perennialists hate huey long yeah. <laughs> but um but no i mean <laughs> no <laughs> no but the uh uh, the, the the tragedy is that um uh, how I learned I didn't this isn't how I learned about him actually this is exactly how I learned about him most of the Zoomers listening like just think you along like oh funny Kaiserreich man but um uh, <laughs> but um, but I I'd be loath to to talk about Huey Long without at least mentioning Leander Perez oh, no. as the uh, as the little as like as like uh, the, little, the, the little tin pot Huey Long. <laughs> Now, well, Leander Perez is a, he's a he was a he was wet a, back Huey Long. He was an he was an Islaño Catholic, and there is an episode of the Firing Line where you can go experience the greatness of Leander Perez. Where you know he's on the with, you know on the with William Buckley. William Buckley's talking with him. Well, says you know, you are a racist, you know, <laughs> and he goes no. 
and he's smoking <laughs> a, smoking a cigar out of his out of his little, little holder or whatever. And they say, well, this is you you you, you uh, mentioned it on in a public speech that the the Negro race will never be able to achieve the civilizational standard, you know, uh, uh, attained by white man. And he goes, Yeah, I said it. He says, You are not a racist. I just tell it how it is. But he was a little little tin pot. He long lived, and he he ran the he ran Plaquemines Parish, which is the very towest of the tow part of the boots. The it's one underwater now, so it? mostly underwater. It's about five miles across. He ran it with an iron fist, functionally from 1924 to like 1970 or whenever whenever it was he died. Whoa. And yeah, and uh, at, at one point he was he was ousted from power by an opposing posse of armed men, and he rode across the Mississippi River, deputized another posse, armed them, <laughs> rode back across in the same day, and took it back. You know, so the the, the, kind, the kind of fascinating literally, literally a Red happened. Dead Redemption two mission. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. Just um, uh, you know, for for the audience, don't know, Islanos uh, is referring to the specific ethnicity of Spaniards that were sent to uh, to settle the Canary Islands, um, and actually a um, a disproportionate amount of Islanos actually were the initial wave of colonists because it's the closest fucking source of Spaniards to the New World. So all the ships are like, oh hey, you guys want to go colonize? Okay, beats living here. And so you'll find, like, you know, even though, like, something like Islandia is made up, I, don't, I can't make up numbers, but, like, 0.8% of, like, the Castilian population, they make up something like 30%, if not more, of, like, the Spanish ancestry of people, at least in the Caribbean and Puerto Rico. Yeah. Um, so it, but now, and, and you know, um, uh, as, as recently as, like, maybe 30, 40 years ago, you still have, like, a pocket of them. In New Orleans, speaking as language Spanish. Saint Bernard Parish actually is where it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm. Uh, I'm, they, I'm. I'm. They're still out there somewhere. Yeah, my uh, my mother participates in some of that. Um, and, like she helps out at the Islanos Museum because on her side we're descended from Islanos um, as well. Yeah, I have. Uh, I have Islanos, German, French, uh, yeah, like a, Sicilian, a, a veritable Ameramite. <laughs> Ameramite. That's, yeah, that, that's every group that every group that settled in New Orleans. Like, it's like, it's like, but the, the idea that there is still because they they spoke a very strange dialect of, of not a very strange dialect. Mm-hmm. It's like you wouldn't have a difficult time understanding it. But they spoke a very distinct version of Spanish. They called Islanos Spanish. Theoretically, there's still people out there that speak it as a first language but I mean, that sounds like the, the people also say ivory bill woodpeckers live in Louisiana and I've never, I've never seen one you know I mean it's yeah. one of those things that may not may not really exist anymore well it's it's one of those things that Louisiana writers noted about New Orleans was was how the different ethnic groups uh, maintained a lot of ethnic pride over generations mm. and had <clears throat> distinct neighborhoods so New Orleans is is great uh, uh among southern cities it's very unusual in that it had this big ethnic contingent with with their own ghettos which is really interesting like there's this big jewish community in new orleans uh louisiana elected the very first jew to congress uh, now the national the national socialists hate new orleans <laughs> 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 
Well, Ju- Judah P. Benjamin. Do you know Judah P. Yeah. Benjamin? Oh, I'm very familiar with Judah P. Benjamin. Yeah. So uh, what, he, was, what was it that Shelby Foote said about him? Or Shelby Foote was quoting someone else. That's that wide-eyed Jew or something like that. He was a Jew uh, too, wasn't he? Yeah, Secretary of War for Jefferson Davis before he um, before the FFVs got mad. And so then Jeff Davis just reappointed him to Secretary mm-hmm. of State. It's like... Yeah, yeah, he held several positions. I think he was Attorney General as well, but yeah. never Secretary of Treasury. What the fuck? Neo Confederates now hate the Confederacy. <laughs> he has a he has a just a hilariously Jewish story about his escape after the you know like of course he didn't yes he, 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 he didn't go down with the ship and you know he like he like 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 dressed as a woman. Um, like, many, many such he, cases. He, he, <laughs> <laughs> he dresses a woman, snuck across the Gulf Coast, caught a little packet ship out uh, into the Caribbean to make for home or something like that, and the the ship ran into a hurricane and somehow survived it. And he has this like story about how he felt as though he was a prophet, an Old Testament prophet. You know, like like sailing through the waters of you know you know some it was the great trial of his life or something like that. And it's like oh you know anybody who tries to tell you Judah P. Benjamin wasn't a Jew, no, he was. <laughs> well, all all the ethnic groups that that came into New Orleans, it makes the place look like I don't know what I read about Chicago or New York City. All these all these interesting ethnic enclaves. And New Orleans is still that way to some degree. Uh, there are Italian neighborhoods, English neighborhoods, Spanish neighborhoods, French neighborhoods. Uh, Vietnamese. Yeah, now, yeah. 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 It, it yeah brought like, in this big Vietnamese contingent after the Vietnam War. Yeah. So the, they brought in Vietnamese Catholics in New Orleans. Yeah, actually but, in my parish, and I imagine it's like this in, in most, uh, you actually see a lot of Vietnamese and Filipinos as well in church. So sort of They're pious people. Yeah, they actually are. The, it's interesting if, if you go to the graveyard, some of the nicest uh, mausoleums and graves will actually have they all have Vietnamese names on them. Yeah. They tend to be the most serious Catholics, which is pretty interesting. Well, that, that's a cool thing about the graveyards too. You can see that ethnic distinction mm-hmm. in the graveyards of New Orleans, which are beautiful. I mean, they're all built above ground, so they're they're all these great mausoleums. And that's something the city is so famous for, but you see, you, you see these fraternal orders, which were like life insurance, uh, mutual aid societies, yeah. and mm. stuff. And all the men—I don't, I don't know where their families ended up—but all the men ended up in communal mausoleums that the fraternity built for their members. And there's like the the Sociedad de Cervantes, and that's the Spanish fraternity or something. There are. And, Freemason lodges in nearly all of these languages. There's a German Freemason lodge. There's a. It's like, oh, now, now the now the Orthodox Christians hate New Orleans. <laughs> but yeah, there's 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 Freemason lodges and that that conduct their rites in German, Spanish, French, English. Well, they, uh, a number of them. They had they had traditions as well that they like to stay distinct from one another. And one of, one of the funny things about the Spaniards in New Orleans. Is uh, well, they uh, they famously like to wear long mustaches, that made them stand out mm. um, as Spaniards. Um, but like they also like... they had affairs of honor. 
So there, there was plenty of dueling in New Orleans. It was a famous, famous tradition of New Orleans. But the Spaniards only wanted to duel with swords. They refused to duel with pistols. And as a consequence, Spaniards would only duel other Spaniards. Yeah. Which, which is also very, very funny about it. The last duel that occurred in Louisiana was in 1948, and it was between two people who had worked under a bartender named Ramos. And I guess he was, uh-huh. he was one of it. But the, the, the last duel that was fought, this is sort of legendary, but I think it really happened that the last duel that was fought in New Orleans was over was two of his former under bar keeps who had set up, after Ramos died, they had set up opposing bars on you know the other side of, like right across from one another, and they had like an endless duel about, an endless feud about whether or not two drops of vanilla extract were supposed to go into the drink near the end. And it ero- it eventually ended in a duel, and one of them was killed. <laughs> <laughs> Least trivial Spanish duel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, but but before we uh, before we alienate the rest of the online right by listing all right. of the things about Louisiana um, that uh, that you know make make just the various parts of this very 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 big tent organization hate it. We have any sort of closing thoughts about the uh, the state, the city of New Orleans, uh, the the entirety of, of what the consciousness of, of Louisiana and Gallo America, or even just even just the place. We have any closing thoughts on it? Matter of fact, let's start with Charles. What you got? I love the debauchery of the city, despite everything. Um, I don't know. I just uh, I can't help but appreciate Mardi Gras, and the I don't know. There's something about the party attitude there the laissez-faire of it all that's uh i find very refreshing sometimes i think people from other parts of the right you know they have a stilted attitude towards having fun yeah um, yeah this is a no fun zone <laughs> I, sir. I find it particularly um grating because i'm from new orleans and i'm used to you know all the parades even you know, there's the gay pride and everything. That's always been a thing, and it, it never bothers me as much. And I, I guess I sort of see the value in just uh, letting the hair down and having some fun. Um, I think everyone could learn something from New Orleans. Um, well, is, is how long is Mardi Gras? Is it like a week or is it like a, a month or how long is it? I, it's about a month. Um, yeah, so it really ramps up in the last week. Yeah, um, so y'all, y'all so. have a whole month dedicated to like being as as much of a debauched hedonist as possible. Oh, so Pride Month. Yeah, I say, uh, I Pride Month for white people. Pride Month, Pride Month, Pride <laughs> Month. So. <laughs> but, no, but then, like, literally, you know, as you said, like, min- the cops won't do anything the last day of Mardi Gras, right before, uh, right before Wednesday and, Ash Wednesday and Lent comes along. It's like, you can, you can be, you could be breaking the law at 11.59 p.m., but as soon as 12 o'clock hits, you're done, the parties are over, and you're at mass. Mm-hmm. And the cops will arrest you if you're not. And, wow. and that's, that's, you know, Catholics, Catholics uh, celebrating right now, like, pointing at this, like, this is why the Catholic Church is the best, because we invented carnival. I mean, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> that video AA did on uh, <clears throat> the opposition between carnival and Lent, I really do think that there is something to that. I honestly think, you know, the, the kind of, off those comments you made, like the kind of hell world we live in 
is largely because Carnival and Lent have been mixed perpetually. Yes. Right? There's yes. no distinction between when the festival is over and when it's like it's like you have the worst of both worlds. You have yeah. like all of the the lack of limitations of the festival and the the too many options and the too much indulgence, but you also have the sort of moral grandstanding and the um, guilt tripping and the guilt tripping and the the social ostracization yeah. and all that other stuff of uh, of Lent, and so it's really, and and this is even something that I think the right wingers fall victim to is they either want, you know, I don't think anyone wants permanent carnival, but like a lot of right wingers just want permanent Lent, and I don't yeah. think I don't think you know swinging the pendulum back to permanent Lent. Maybe we need a nice long Lent after yeah. all of this, <laughs> or or a nice nice long carnival, right? Either we just go full on debauchery. Although I don't know if that's, but yeah. but either way, I think the differentiation well, you, needs to be restored. You yeah. can't have fasting <clears throat> with without feasting. You can't have feasting without fasting. You, there has to be a distinction. But that, that's actually the thing that I like most uh, about Louisiana, in particular, in the Deep South, and. And you know, I, I can't I can't talk about New Orleans as much uh, from my own personal experience. I'm I'm a Louisianian looking into New Orleans from the outside. Um, but Louisiana is a deeply religious place, and Louisiana is based that way. And I think that's that's the natural condition of Louisiana. It's about as pagan and as it is Catholic. It it respects natural order. Louisianians respect natural order um, in, in spite of the debauchery. I think the debauchery comes with that. Mm. It might be the wrong word. But I mean, there's, it's perhaps Dionysianism is a yes. better way. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, it's <laughs> not Apollonian. Yeah. Because we, we try to make provision for ourselves down here, but it's a hostile environment. Mm. It's, it's a perfumed jungle. Um, and it's kind of difficult to live in at the best of times. It's literally Katachan from 40K. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's, it's a tough place, but no matter what kinds of plans we make for ourselves, nature always comes to get us. And so the best we can do is pray. So even in the air-conditioned nightmare of modern America, even with the strip malls and the Walmart distribution centers and all, the, all that comes with it and the Internet, we can't hide from nature down here. Nature's out there. Nature roars at us mm. regularly, and the alligators come up and sleep under our cars. <laughs> we encounter it. So even though we aren't really connected to the soil anymore, we aren't really agrarian living people anymore, we live, we live in houses, um, we still encounter nature, and that still gets us in touch with the mysteries and mm. cycles of nature. Yeah. We can't escape that. So that makes us a pious people. And that, that means that we've got carnival, and we also have Lent down yeah. there. And when the hurricanes come, and this happened with Ida, I, rem I remember Ida was my first big hurricane. Uh, I, I moved back to Louisiana from living away for a long time. Uh, I went to Walmart to get get supplies, and there were people just praying out loud to one another in the aisles of Walmart. Um, I remember I was I was headed towards the checkout, you know, with a with an ice box so I could unload my fridge and take to the highway and get my family to safety. And there was this guy in the middle of Walmart, and he said, "My only hope is in my Lord Jesus Christ." And several people would go, Amen, brother. Amen. We're praying. 
And it was totally sincere. And in, in a situation like that where you know, you know, only God can help you in a situation like that. And you really need His mercy. We feel that down here. We feel that down here in this in this late stage. No, what's what's interesting? That's very almost anti-Faustian, right? It's almost like the exact opposite of the sort of what you could call the. Um, uh, I'd honestly call it the Anglo mindset, the idea of the transformation of nature to gain dominion over it versus the uh, submission to nature. Which actually, you know, if you read Spengler closely in the essay Prussianism and Socialism, he argues are the two competing uh, aspects of the Faustian spirit. Um, <clears throat> almost the, uh, the, the Western manifestations of the Apollonian versus the Dionysian. And really, you know, that Dionysian spirit that Charlie was talking about, in many ways that kind of is a sort of submission to God and a submission to nature. It's kind of like, well... We could all be dead tomorrow because a hurricane could just hit in the wrong spot and we're all 10 feet underwater, right? So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's, that's a, very, uh, it's a very interesting and a very astute observation. I mean, on the religiosity, one of the, the reason I made that comment, you know, more pagan, is I was, I, one of the stories that kind of stuck with me when I was, you know, reading up on folklore was the idea of, and I think this comes from Louisiana, um, walking up to the crossroads at midnight, waiting for, um, uh, expecting to see Lucifer there in a very nice suit um, with an offer for you, right? And there's, you know, I, the, the Africans call him Legba. Um, and I think that's a holdover from West African folklore and voodoo and all that. But it's kind of, it's an interesting, you see an interesting syncretization of that with, uh, with the already very pagan Catholicism that's here. And, you know, yeah, that's, it's those sort of things that you don't really, you don't really find elsewhere. And the, the world is a very spiritually sapped place, um, yeah. just in general. But, like, New Orleans and Louisiana as a whole, like, whether it's the, the Spanish moss hanging over uh, Low Road with, um, uh, with the full moon beaming down on it and the glow of the trees around it, it's... it's it almost feels like you're in an older part of the world that hasn't been spiritually sapped yet. So I just wanted to wanted to speak to that. Yeah, I what, agree. What, what what pseudonym do we fucking pick for you, Joseph? <laughs> Joseph, I, I don't fucking Joseph. know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I was just I'm, I was very impressed by New Orleans' resistance against modernity that was talked about earlier. It was it was really great going through the French Quarter and seeing the amazing architecture and then. Of course, right next to it are a bunch of giant skyscrapers just standing there, but there really is something nice about that, that it's one of the few American cities that is really, like, still grounded in its um, historical traditions, mm. and you can really feel it emanating from everybody, and you can even kind of see it in uh, most of the people, but, uh, yeah, that's all I got. No, like having lunch at the Napoleon House, Oh, yeah, right? right. The Napoleon House was just amazing. Yeah. It, it, like, beautiful it, place, playing classical music, and taking pride in it, even the waiter yeah. was just... The, the waiter was just beaming with pride and so happy to tell me about the whole place and it brought the whole experience to a nice closure. Like, yeah. It was great. 100%. Y'all you you hear the story about Napoleon House? Yes. Yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. It, it's hard not to because it's on the menus. Alright, Sam, that's what you got. No, you know, I, everybody's probably heard enough of me talking for the day, actually. <laughs> but I did just to wrap everything up, just to... So I almost stuck in unstuck in time the damn place is. 
is this is from this is something that was written about New Orleans in 1873. His name is Lafcadio Heron. Could be Spanish. Could be French. Could be Italian. I don't know. But uh, he was writing a letter. He's a fa- kind of a famous novelist. He's writing a letter. And, he sa- at, at the, and this is in 1873 at the height of Reconstruction. He says the times are not good here. The city is crumbling into ashes. It has been buried under taxes and frauds and maladministrations so that it has become a study for archaeologists. But it is better to live here in sackcloth and ashes than to own the whole, whole state of Ohio. That's the second time I've dumped hard on the state of Ohio. Now, now everyone in Ohio hates New Orleans. Yeah, all four people in Ohio. Yeah. No, but... I guess my, my kind of closing thoughts on Louisiana and New Orleans is it, it really, it kind of, to me, it seems like the crossroads, even more so than Texas, right? It seems like the crossroads of the entirety of America is here. Like, you have, you've, you've got the East Coast old money with their, you know, the Southern plantations and the, and the Boston Brahmins who moved down to places like Natchez, also moved down to places like New Orleans and all that. You've got the, you've got the white trash peckerwood part you've got the cajuns their own unique part of it you've even you've even got the uh, the sort of you've got the the mississippi river culture there as well that sort of vein that connects louisiana to the rest of the greater mississippi river region it makes it kind of feel like well it's kind of in the south sort of but like it's also sort of its own thing and you know not only that but like that whole sort of caribbean thing below it and it's one of really it's 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 a place that I don't think can exist anywhere outside of America. Like it's it's almost a microcosm of what America was. And this I, people are going to hear this and they're going to think, oh, you know, Paul's talking about the fucking melting pot myth. You know, it's, it's not right wing. Stop trying to make the melting pot myth right wing, Paul. That's that's exactly what I'm trying to. Not really, but um. But Ameri- the founding stock of America, like, like what America is meant to be, is the final conclusion, the final iteration, and the best iteration of the West. It is all of the best aspects of each individual culture that you could say is, is in the West. And New Orleans kept the best aspects of everyone that touched it. You know, it kept the best aspects of the Spanish, the French. You know, you talked about I was ruled over by all the all the colonial powers. Well, it kept the best aspects of all of them. Except Haiti. Yeah, except except for the blacks, but you know. <laughs> you know that's, that's another problem for another day. But, um, but that's just kind of what it feels like to me. It's like one of these nodes, one of these, you know, microcosms that feels like it could be its own place, but without it, this grand overarching concept of America that we have would kind of fall in on itself. You know, and there are very, very, very few places in the United States that are like that. Almost, There's nothing that's j- quite like New Orleans, but there's probably less than five other places in the United States that can fulfill that same role as to like a place in and of itself and yet not separate from what the United States was. And, you know, that... That's kind of I think that's the that's the best way to uh, to wrap up the discussion on you know, New Orleans, uh, and now it's time for us to uh, sell our various uh, our various um, uh, 
content to separate Zoomers from their student loan money. Charlie, what you got to shill? My Substack, of course, charlemagne.substack.com. Uh, subscribe there, and you can have paid subscriptions as well for my uh, series I'm doing where I more or less do book reviews, I suppose, book notes. Uh, I'm going to be doing Jay Out of Poles book next um, on the ethnic cleansing of Germans in the Soviet Union. Um, so that should be pretty interesting. And I think I'm going to continue reading some uh, literature in that vein. I got some of the books Thomas recommended. Eastern Inferno, I think, was one of, one of them. And Soldat, which was some German memoirs. So I think subscribers will find that interesting. Mr. Bagby, what you got? Um, nothing, really. I hope to be recording books in the near future. I've got some on Audible now, but I've already been paid for those, so... Find his wonderful voice on Audible under the name George Bagley. He's recorded some excellent revisionist Southern literature. You got anything? I have nothing to show. Outstanding. Sam, that I have a, I have a Substack. You know, I don't know the URL for it. Those Esoterica Americana. You can it's find me. Esotericaamericana.substack.com. Uh, are you sure that's? How do you know I didn't make it something else? <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, I've got Esoterica Americana. I, I publish pretty infrequently. Um, you can find me on Twitter if you want to at, at Christopher Sandbach. You know, go follow. Go. I don't charge money. It's all good time. All oh, you know where to find me. All right. Well, this has been a wonderful uh, live edition of the New World Signals podcast, and. Um, what the, what the fuck is my final... It's the, it's the stupidest final line. I just said it off the top of my head, episode one, and people are like, oh, wow, that sounds so profound in both ends. I thought it was the dumbest thing. But may you find foreign shores less appealing than your own.